0: Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 119. We'll be reading verses 57 to 80 of Psalm 119. There is, there is actually a story of Psalm 119 being read in its completeness in one service. It was a Sunday in England uh, during the late Middle Ages uh, where the, the, uh, the pastor was a little concerned that uh, the attendance that day was rather low. And so he told them to sing Psalm 119, and he went around the village and drove everybody to the church. So. <laughs> Psalm 119, starting in verse 57. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live For your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible, and I think sometimes we don't quite know what to do with it. It's just sort of, it's a really long psalm all about God's commands and his law and his word, his statutes, his precepts. And I think sometimes we kind of get lost in the middle and lose sight of what's going on. But there's another pair of words that are used more often than any others in Psalm 119. You and I. It's only when you see the you, the Lord, and the I, the singer of the psalm, that you start to see what is going on. Psalm 119 is a prayer where I pour out my heart before God. And uh, David Pallison has a beautiful meditation on Psalm 119 in his. uh, If you're interested, we've got copies in the library. But it's just. The way he walks through this and shows this is, this is where I go to learn how to be open with God, how to be vulnerable, how to pour out my soul before the Lord in a way that's, I'm not just, I'm not just sort of like coming to God and saying, huh, I'm always right, what are you doing here? Well, obviously that's not how we come to God. But also, I'm really hurting. This isn't working. Things are not good. I mean, the psalmist has a lot to say about suffering just to the part we read. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, verse 67. It was good for me that I was afflicted, verse 71. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me, verse 75. How do you think about your suffering? I think oftentimes at, when, we're at, when we're at our best, we think of our suffering as a test of our faith. And that's true. It's something that we need to endure in order to grow in Christ. Right. But Psalm 119 encourages us to think of our affliction more cosmically. Actually, in the section just before what we read, in verses 49 and 50, the psalmist says, Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. What does he mean? Remember your word to your servant. Who is the servant of the Lord? This is, a, this is encouraging us to think of the first person singular as, as the servant of the Lord, as yes, David, even more, Jesus. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. What is the promise that gives life? What if I told you that your suffering, your affliction, is part of the great trial, the great tribulation that was prophesied to come upon the Lord's people before the end? What if I told you that your suffering was part of what God is doing in history to bring about the salvation of humanity? That's what the entire New Testament says your suffering is. That's what Psalm 119 says your suffering is. How should a Christian respond? I mean, I know many of you either have been through this or are going through this, and the rest of you are about to go through this. How many of you have lost your parents? How many of you have lost the entire generation of your parents? When my aunt died last spring, she was the last of my parental generation, and I had that sense of, oh, I'm next. And I know that many of you are going through that, where it's like, wait, the, that previous generation is going. That means I'm next. And those of you who haven't started losing that generation, that's what's coming. It happens in every generation. It's a pattern. How should a Christian think about this Cycle of suffering, affliction, and death. What's the point of all of this? Well, whenever we maintain our faith in Christ, throughout these situations, we demonstrate our identification with the Messiah, with the servant of the Lord, whose promise gives life. Indeed, If we think of suffering and affliction as something strange that doesn't—that's just sort of this 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 sort of unfortunate add-on to the Christian life—we will never be a healthy church. We will never be healthy Christians. It's only when we see that these afflictions that God sends, this is part of what God is doing in history to bring about the salvation of humanity, to bring about the coming of the age to come. This is what the resurrection of Jesus in the middle of history is all about. That's what we need to see. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll start reading at the end of chapter 2, verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 2, verse 17. so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. The thing that Paul wants you to see here in this chapter is that your suffering, your afflictions, are part of what God is doing in the Great tribulation. Now, I know some people have heard that, oh, isn't the Great Tribulation something that happens at the end of history? Well, yes. And the end of history came when Jesus was raised from the dead. The Great Tribulation is what started in Christ's own sufferings. Paul says that it started when Christ came in our flesh and won't stop until Christ returns again. John says the same thing in Revelation 1, verse 9. He said, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus. The tribulation and the kingdom are not two different stages in redemptive history. They're the same stage. When did the kingdom start? Well, when Christ came in the flesh and announced the kingdom of God is at hand. What will happen when Christ returns? He will, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, hand over the kingdom to his father. So when the king came, that's when the kingdom started, and he will then hand the kingdom over to his father when he has placed everything under his feet. So that's where the kingdom refers to from the incarnation of Christ to his return. And in the same way, the tribulation began when Christ came and suffered in our flesh, and it will continue until he returns and wipes every tear away from our eyes. And that is what Jesus is doing in your life, in your life, in your life, in my life. This is what he is doing in, in bringing all of creation Into subjection, that he is conforming us to his likeness. And we get a glimpse of this in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 as Paul is exhorting the Thessalonians to steadfastness, to endurance in this tribulation and kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll, you'll understand better when we get to chapters 4 and 5 why I'm bringing this up now, because you read chapter 3, you're sort of like, what does all this end-time stuff have to do? Well, that's where Paul's going in chapters 4 and 5. And so chapter 3, he's setting you up for it. And in chapter 3, we get a glimpse into Paul's own experience of what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17. In Acts 17, uh, we hear about Paul's brief stay in Thessalonica, He had spent three weeks visiting the synagogue, reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, we're told by Luke that some Jews were persuaded, and a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But then the Jewish leaders grew jealous, and they pulled together a mob to attack Paul and Silas. So these new believers in Thessalonica who seem to only have had a few weeks of Paul's instruction in the faith are suddenly left without teachers. And Paul was sent away with Silas to Berea, where the Berean Jews searched the scriptures to see if these things were true, but then the Jews from Thessalonica sent agitators to pursue Paul. And so the Bereans sent Paul on to Athens while Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Now, later in chapter 18 of Acts, we're told that Silas and Timothy would later join Paul in Corinth. Well, that seems to be where Paul is writing First Thessalonians from. Paul is now in Corinth, he's writing back, and he's basically saying, okay, just want to make sure y'all are okay, and that you're still growing in the faith, that you haven't, uh, there's going to be all of these temptations to fall away. The tempter is going to be going after you. The Jewish community, if if for those who had been hanging out in the synagogue, the Jewish community is going to be trying to pull them away from Jesus back to Judaism. The Gentile community is, is going to be saying, "Are you nuts? Resurrected Messiah? What on earth are you talking about?" So, if Satan is trying to hinder my attempts to go back to Thessalonica, what does that say about what's happening in Thessalonica? If there is, you know, sort of like this, I I haven't heard anything. What's going on? I had heard initial reports of their faith, of their their love. This is great, but now what's happening? I feared that the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul knows that the tempter would love nothing better than to undermine their faith. Remember, this is, this is the same Paul who will say, be anxious for nothing. And the same Paul who says, be anxious for nothing, says, I feared. You've got to understand that when Paul says, be anxious for nothing, he's not saying that, oh, there's nothing to fear in all the world. There are lots of things to fear in all the world. The tempter being the most prominent one, perhaps. But he says i feared the tempter had tempted you but what did he do about it you see this is this is the question of our our problem is when we get anxious we start thinking ah okay how do i fix this how do i make it right what do i do what do i do what does paul do well you notice paul spends a lot of time in prayer and he also looks for what can i do in this case send timothy <laughs> let's you know, sort of let's see how they're doing let's send a messenger but do you realize that the tempter is trying to undermine your faith as well? Satan has many schemes, but the one that Paul highlights here is suffering. In our day, one of Satan's favorites is, if God loved you, he wouldn't let you suffer. You ever ever felt that one? If God loves me, why did he let that happen? And this can either come in terms of our own personal experience or in more general terms, why is the world so messed up? And Paul's reply is to send Timothy to Thessalonica to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Notice, it's not that sort of, oh, don't worry, these afflictions aren't that important. No, it's actually that you not be moved by them. They're real. But don't let them shift you away from the faith. Paul wants you to understand that affliction, suffering, is not accidental. Verse 3, you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We are appointed by God for this purpose. For what purpose? Verse 4. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, this is God's appointed purpose for you, that through suffering, you might be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Notice, Paul is not saying, oh, you deserve it. That's not his point at all. Paul is not saying that suffering, is just, that's just the way things are. No, Paul is saying what he will later say to the Corinthians, this Light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is not saying that we endure affliction for a while now, and then someday God will make everything right. Actually, what he's saying is, these afflictions that we endure right now are part of what God is doing in making all things right. These light momentary afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. This is what, before I was afflicted, I strayed, said the psalmist. Ah, it was good for me that I was afflicted because now I see and I am being conformed to the likeness of Christ. There is a direct relation, Paul is saying, not just an indirect tangential thing, but a very direct relation between your suffering and eternal glory. What is that direct relation between your suffering and and eternal glory, the cross of Jesus. The eternal Son of God came in our flesh. He took our humanity upon himself, joined our humanity to himself, and suffered for us on the cross. The Heidelberg Catechism has a nice way of putting this. He must be a true man, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man, because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. He had to be a true man. Only Adam's flesh and blood could pay for Adam's error. But not just a true man, he also had to be a righteous man, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, as Hebrews says. Only a true and righteous man could be a fitting, unblemished sacrifice. But even a true and righteous man could not bear the weight of our sin. A true and righteous man could pay for one because one pays for one. That's why our Lord Jesus must also be God. He must be true God, says the Catechism, so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. It must be a son of Adam who would repair Adam's fault, but no son of Adam could survive the wrath and curse of God. I love how John Calvin says this. His task was so to restore us to God's grace as to make of the children of men children of God, of the heirs of Gehenna, heirs of the heavenly kingdom. Who could have done this? Had not the selfsame Son of God become the Son of Man and had not so taken what was ours as to impart what was his to us, and to make what was his by nature, ours by grace. It was his task to swallow up death. Who but the very life could do this? It was his task to conquer sin. Who but very righteousness could do this? It was his task to rout the powers of world and air. Who but a power higher than world and air could do this? Now, where does life or righteousness or lordship and authority of heaven lie but with God alone? Therefore, our most merciful God, when he willed that we be redeemed, made himself our redeemer in the person of his only begotten son. But God doesn't just sort of like come along and wave a magic wand. God doesn't have magic wands. How does he do it? He does it far better. He joins us to himself. Think back to Paul's beautiful statement in chapter 2, verse 8. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls. Paul and Silas and Timothy have been joined to the life of God. Dr. Sunshine preached this beautifully last week in what does it mean for us to be made partakers of the divine nature? And this is why Paul now says that he sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. God's co-worker? How do you get to be a co-worker of God? Well, be joined to the life of God. Become a partaker of the divine nature through the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. Now that his energy is at work in you, you are a co-worker of God. And so uh, there's nothing surprising, there's nothing earth-shaking about these afflictions. If our Lord Jesus suffered in the flesh, we should expect to suffer with him. This is what Paul had told them when he was present, and now it's what they have heard from Timothy during his sojourn with them. Now, in verse 5, you may notice that Paul lapses into the singular. When I could bear it no longer. Now, part of this is, is that, He's been writing in the plural, Paul and Silas and Timothy. They've been authoring this together. But why does he lapse into the singular? Well, because as he says, he was in Athens alone. There was no we in Athens. It was just Paul. So when I could bear it no longer, he realized, I can't go myself. There are people in Thessalonica who are trying to kill me. It would not be helpful for me to show up. But I could send Timothy. Timothy. Now, Timothy, as we hear from the book of Acts, was still in Berea with Silas. So it's not very, and we're told that, that Silas and, and Timothy did not join Paul until Corinth. So it's most likely that Paul didn't get a chance to see Timothy. He probably sent a message back up to Berea saying, Hey, Timothy, I know I told you to come down and meet me in Athens. Because that's what Luke tells us he had done. But rather than come to Athens, why don't you go back to Thessalonica? They sure i'd love to see you love to have you with me here they need you more go to thessalonica make sure they're okay i sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain now notice paul doesn't just think of of making converts as his purpose his task is to make disciples if the if the, if the thessalonians would sort of believe for a little while and then fall away, our labor would be in vain. Disciples are those who are learning to observe what Jesus commanded, those who are putting into practice the way of Christ's kingdom. It's, it's why if you, if you make a 1,000 converts and 900 of them return to their old way of life, that's half the ministry of one who disciples 200 remaining faithful to the end. Now, the reality, of course, is mixed. We need those who are good at bringing them in. And we need those who are good at training them up. And we need those who are good at bringing them home. It's all part of what, and that's part of what Paul's talking about with this team of disciple-making. It's, there's Paul and Silas and Timothy, each have, have their unique gifts and abilities. And now Paul says, and now I've heard the good news. I've heard the gospel. It's actually... The word gospel here. And it says, I've heard the good news of your faith and love. Timothy has just preached the gospel to me. Now, that might sound strange. The gospel, the euangelion, ordinarily refers to the announcement of what God has done in Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. The same gospel that Timothy reported back to Paul. Hey, Paul, want to hear the gospel? Oh, yeah, Timothy, tell me the gospel. While Jesus is still at work in Thessalonica, the church there is faithful to Jesus. They are steadfast in their afflictions. They are bearing the cross. They are devoted to Jesus. They haven't fallen away. The gospel is still at work. The good news of what Jesus has done is still at work. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And when Paul says, now we live, he's not just talking about, oh, yeah, I'm still alive. No, no, now we live eternal life, spiritual life, real life. Now we live if you are standing firm, if you are standing fast in the Lord. As long as the same, the same Spirit who came upon Jesus in his baptism at the Jordan River has now come upon you as you have been baptized by one Spirit into one body. And as long as his Spirit is working you, you will continue to be a living embodiment of the gospel of God. Is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Paul says. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul rejoices. He gives thanks to God because God has continued to send forth his gospel. Sometimes we forget this, but in Paul's day there were only a few thousand Christians in the whole world what happens if nobody believes the message now Paul's not really worried about that because he knows who God is but still he's concerned for these people who are being tempted but when you think about the faith that Paul has to be to be among those early believers who all the testimony of their senses would be to say, are you nuts? This is, this is what God is doing for the salvation of the world? I mean, Judaism had been this parochial religion off in a corner, which, you know, sure, there were lots of Greeks and Romans who were kind of curious about it, but really? And yet that gospel, that good news, has now gone to the ends of the earth and has spread all over the globe. And Paul says, sure, fine, we are afflicted. Of course we are. What else would you expect? I've been crucified with Christ. But now, even in the midst of trial and affliction, even in the midst of persecution and trouble, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Paul is once more modeling for us the pattern of life that we should live. What joy is ours because you are standing fast. Over the, over the years, we've been able to see, you know, see literally hundreds of members go forth you know, all over the world. I'm not able to keep in close touch with, with all of them, but over the years, to be able to see and hear from dozens, it's always a tremendous joy to see them walking faithfully with God. And Paul says that we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. As he rejoices, as they rejoice in the steadfast faithfulness of the, sta- of the saints, they continue to pray earnestly for the church in Thessalonica that they might see them face to face. I mean, letters are good. Timothy's report is one step better. I'm sure a, a phone call or a Zoom chat would be, would be fine. Paul says we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face. Hearing a digital representation of your voice is not the same thing. Seeing a digital facsimile of your face is not your face. The only way to see you face to face is to be present in the flesh. Other forms of communication are good. Don't get me wrong. I I am thankful to God for Zoom. Lots of good things have happened. But it's not the same thing as being in the flesh. Other forms of communication lack the embodiedness of face-to-face connection. Why is this so important for Paul? Well, we want to supply what is lacking in your faith. What does Paul mean by that? He's just heard that they are standing firm. What is lacking in their faith? Well, we saw at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians that what Paul wants to see for you is that you would continue to grow in faith, hope, and love. The work of faith is holding fast to Christ, believing Him, trusting Him, even when everything around you seems hopeless. Our labor of love is enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit Indeed, the Holy Spirit is the love of God who has been poured into our hearts because God is love. And when the God who is love is poured into your heart, you also love. This is why the the work of faith, believing in God even when it's hard, the labor of love, loving one another even when it's hard, can only happen with that third leg of the stool, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning of the Christian life, Faith is the way we are connected to God in the content of a Christian life. Love is the greatest. But here in First Thessalonians, Paul seems to emphasize hope. Now he doesn't use the word hope in chapter three, but hope is really where he's driving all of this. Hope has to do with the future. What is it that you hold on to when the world is crashing down around you? What is your hope that motivates you to go out and do what you do? Some people are motivated by stuff and status, getting a paycheck. They go to work, they do the things in, in the hope of getting paid. Some people are motivated by what people think of them. I hope they notice what I did. But if I'm motivated by what I get, or if I'm motivated by how I feel, that suggests that what drives me is ultimately me. And every self-centered hope is a hope that will fail. There is only one hope that does not fail. There is one future that will endure forever, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope in our Lord Jesus means that in what you're doing at every moment, you are connected to Jesus, that he is at work in you. Hope says, Yes, he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm longing for. So what is lacking in your faith is that endurance in hope. What is lacking in your faith is simply that your faith has not yet persevered to the end. That's what's lacking. I mean, in one sense, the only way to supply that lack is that regular encouragement to hold fast. That is a lack that will never be finished filling up until the day of your death. And this is where we see the return of hope into Paul's letter. Now, he's been focusing on faith. In in, in verse 2, we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. Verse 5, I sent to learn about your faith for fear the tempter had tempted you. Verse 6, Timothy has brought the gospel of your faith and love. Verse 7, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Verse 10, we seek to supply what is lacking in your faith. And even though he doesn't use the word hope, hope is what verses 11 to 13 is all about. And that hope is spelled out in verse 13, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That hope is the motivating power of the gospel. If your hope is that you will have a comfortable life, that is not a Christian hope. If your hope is that you will pass on a tidy inheritance to your kids, that's not a Christian hope. The Christian hope is that the Lord Jesus will make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. The Christian hope is that the Lord Jesus will establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul thinks of the Christian life as a life lived at the intersection of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We share in his sufferings in our trials and tribulations. but We also share in his resurrection glory. It's not just that, oh, someday we get resurrection glory. But already by faith, we see him sitting at the right hand of God. Already by faith, Paul says in Ephesians, we have been raised and seated with him in the heavenlies. That's our present identity. I have been crucified with Christ. There's the suffering with him. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. That is our present reality in Christ. Now our understanding of this falls short. Our experience of this, not very good, pretty fragmentary. That's part of the the already and the not yet. Already, we begin by faith to apprehend this. Paul will use that word apprehend. If you think about it, apprehend is a great word. Apprehending something is laying hold of it. It's, it, it. It involves the thinking about it, understanding it, but it's more than just intellectual. It's a grabbing hold, apprehending, taking hold. That, that's the, the idea of what Paul is getting at. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we'll look more at what Paul means by this because in chapter 4, he's going to talk about what it means to be blameless in holiness And he's going to talk about what he means by the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So for today, it's sufficient to end by saying that Paul's prayer, our prayer, is that the Lord would make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Paul will say to the Galatians, Do good to all people, and especially to those of the household of faith. We have a special call to love one another in the body of Christ. But that special call is to overflow in love for everyone around us because this is how the love of Christ continues to increase and grow in all the earth. If, if we do not love one another, how is anyone supposed to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? Jesus goes so far as to pray in John 17, 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. If we don't live as one, then the world has a right to say, eh, the Father didn't send Jesus. This follows up in what Jesus had said a few chapters earlier in John thirteen thirty-five. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we don't love one another, then we're not Christ's disciples. We need to display visible unity with one another. And before you point the finger at somebody else for their failure in love, how often have I failed to love? As we'll see next time, blameless in holiness is rooted here in abounding love. Love and holiness are not opposed to each other in the least. Francis Schaeffer used to say that that you could counterfeit holiness. That's called legalism. And you can counterfeit love. That's called permissiveness. But you cannot counterfeit holiness and love at the same time. Holiness and love always go together. Holiness is not cold and rigid, but Warm and beautiful, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Love is not licensed to get away with anything. I remember a man who was holding forth the standard of holiness, showing how Christ calls us to walk pure and blameless before him. The young man before him was obviously a little distraught. I fall so far short that the older man then smiled and pointed to the cross of Christ, the one who took our sin and our shame upon himself. Only the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ can hold these things together because the focus here is not on what God does to his people at the end of history, but on God's work in the lives of his people until that day when we share Christ's glory at his final coming. This is God's work in us, the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, our God, have mercy on us. Help us, because we, we fall so far short of that blameless in, in blamelessness and holiness, so far short in that abounding love for one another and for all. Help us, Lord, by your grace and mercy to humble ourselves before you, to believe your promises, to repent of our sins, to trust in your steadfast love and faithfulness, that you have made known in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy upon us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. And let us stand together and sing number 383. Wake, awake, for night is flying. Number 383.